Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. In the top story tonight, we'll report on developments in the biggest abortion story since Roe v. Wade was overturned. In political news, Teresa will tell you about the retirement of a long-serving pro-abortion senator and how the Republican field is shaping up in the race to oust Joe Biden from the White House next year. In Abortion in the News, Leslie will give you the latest on abortion bills in the states and talk about the young man whose right foot helped clinch the Super Bowl for the Kansas City Chiefs. Make sure to stay until the end when Teresa will air an interview she did at the National Pro-Life Summit last month about a company that has a unique way of spreading the pro-life message. We're so happy you're here with us tonight. As we reported last week, a federal judge in Amarillo, Texas, holds the future of chemical abortion in his hands. This is the most consequential case concerning abortion since Roe v. Wade was overturned last June. A lawsuit filed by four pro-life medical groups and four physicians challenges the way the Federal Food and Drug Administration approved the drug mifepristone as an abortifacient in 2000 and asks U.S. District Court Judge Matthew Kaczmarek to issue a temporary injunction banning the sale of the drug and to ultimately rule to permanently bar the drug for use in chemical abortions. The plaintiffs were hoping for the injunction last week, but instead the judge asked the manufacturer of mifepristone, Danko Laboratories, to submit a brief opposing efforts to ban the drug. In court last Friday, attorneys for Danko said forcing the FDA to withdraw approval of the drug would seismically disrupt the agency's governing authority. Attorneys at Alliance Defending Freedom, representing the plaintiffs, have until February 24th, a week from today, to respond. If Kazmarek issues the injunction, mifepristone would be taken off the market in states where abortion remains legal. Women in states where abortion has been banned would be unable to access the drug by mail. Pharmacy chains like CVS and Walgreens would have to abandon plans to sell the drug. Most importantly, hundreds of thousands of babies would be saved, since chemical abortion now accounts for more than half of all abortions in the United States. The lawsuit prompted competing rallies in Amarillo over the weekend. Pro-abortion forces gathered outside the Potter County Courthouse to oppose the injunction, while pro-lifers held a Stand for Life rally outside the federal building. The nation's attorneys general and lawmakers also are lining up to take sides in the case. 22 attorneys general and 67 members of Congress, all Republicans, are backing the effort to overturn FDA approval. Another 22 attorneys general, all Democrats, said pulling the pill from the market would have devastating consequences for women. NARAL Pro-Choice America released research showing that 24.5 million women in states with abortion bans are currently cut off from access to mifepristone, and revoking FDA approval would add another 64.5 million women of reproductive age to that group. As we explained in last week's story, mifepristone is the first pill in the two-drug chemical abortion protocol. The drug floods a woman's progesterone receptors, making it impossible for an embryo to implant in her womb, thus killing the embryo. A second drug, misoprostol, which is not involved in the suit, causes contractions that expel the dead baby from the womb. Abortion profiteers, including Planned Parenthood, already are publicly discussing plans to offer abortion using misoprostol alone. This is a clear indication to pro-lifers that the health and safety of women is of far less concern to abortion providers than their ability to continue profiting from the sale of abortion. As it is, women suffer far more complications from chemical abortion. A teenager in Canada died from sepsis following a chemical abortion last year. 
also rarely mentioned in discussion of misoprostol abortion, is that babies up to 11 weeks gestation would be born alive when expelled from the womb. No matter how the judge rules in the case, it is expected ultimately to be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. Aerosmith singer Steven Tyler began a relationship with a 16-year-old girl in 1973 when he was 25. He convinced her mother to sign over guardianship of the teen to him so she could travel on tour with the band. Decades later, he wrote about their time together in his various books, using her name and including the fact that the two conceived a child who was later aborted. This revelation was a shock to a Houston family. After leaving Tyler, the woman turned her life around. She went back to school, got married, became the mother of seven children, and found her way back to church, eventually becoming a Catholic. Her husband knew about her relationship with Tyler and the abortion, but she found herself having to tell her children about it. She found healing for her abortion at Rachel's Vineyard and became part of Silent No More Awareness Campaign. Now that woman, Julia Holcomb, is suing Tyler for sexual assault, coercion of abortion, and involuntary infamy. The lawsuit was filed in Los Angeles under the California Child Victims Act, which temporarily waived the statute of limitations for survivors of childhood sexual abuse. We have Julia here with us today. Welcome, Julia. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. So, Julia, I know that you can't talk about the lawsuit, but can you tell us just a little bit about your how you met Stephen Tyler and a little about your relationship? Yes, um, I met Stephen at uh, a concert in Portland, Oregon, when I was just barely sixteen. I had just turned sixteen, and um, the way I had, you know, that's one of the questions people often ask: How does a sixteen-year-old girl end up backstage at a rock concert? And I had met a young woman who had access to backstage and she would kind of groom young girls to come with her to concerts. And I got swept up in that world. She just said, do you wanna to go to a rock concert and meet the band? And she just said that the next concert was the Aerosmith concert. And I had heard Steven sing Dream On on the radio. And I had seen his picture on an album cover. And at 16, I just, didn't even think hard at all about whether I wanted to go with her. It just, uh, everything good in life at that age seemed to be wrapped up in rock and roll. So I went with her, I met Steven at the concert and, you know, he took me to his hotel and I stayed the night there with him. In the morning, he sent me home in a taxi and I told my mother where I had been. And, you know, she was at a point in her life where she had left the church and she had gone through two divorces that were very difficult. I guess she was at a point where she was having a crisis of faith in her life. And she was okay with the fact that I had not come home. And she allowed me to go the next day to Seattle. Stephen gave me a flight, a ticket to Seattle to see him perform there. And I stayed the night with him again. And we began, uh, he, would be, he would call me frequently until eventually later that year, he had me flown out to Boston where I spent the summer with him. And while I was there that summer, he came to me and he told me that he wanted to become my legal guardian so that he could take me with him on tour, touring with the band. And he said I was too young for us to marry but that if he became my guardian, 
we could cross state lines on tour and he would have legal protections. So I really did not understand fully at that age, you know, what this meant. And I told him I didn't think that my mother would sign over guardianship of me to him. But he had had his lawyer work on it. He came to me uh, sometime later and told me that he had the paper signed. And I can remember, you know, just being almost disturbed, just not really sure where this would end, how it would all end. And, uh, you know, it was something that at the time I had a mixed feelings of being happy and excited, thinking how wonderful it was for me to be with Stephen, who was so loved and everywhere we went, fans greeted him with, you know, manic cheers and he was on all kinds of press and he had, you know, concerts. But also I understood that I did not have any real protections, uh, none of the protections of marriage. I was simply his ward and I didn't know where this would all end. I barely escaped with my life. I'm lucky uh, to just have made it out of that world safely and into the world I live now, which is so very different with my family. Well, Julia, you saw a tabloid story about him that had your name in it. What was that like? And how did you find the courage then to have to tell your children? Well, you know, when I met my husband, I, we had been dating for some time and I could tell that he was getting very serious. And I knew that I needed to tell him about my relationship with Stephen before he could make a commitment to marriage. That was something he needed to know. Normally I never spoke about those years. They were so traumatic. I had such a, a difficult time just getting back on my feet and trying to rebuild my life after uh, Stephen sent me home. But I had made this, I made a, I had had a conversion experience at a church camp in Portland, uh, in Oregon. And I had asked Jesus to come into my heart, made a confession of faith. And I began to change my life. I was baptized. I began to attend church and my whole life changed for the better when I, you know, invited Jesus to come take my hand and lead me in a new direction. And that direction led me to my husband. And I told him about my relationship with Stephen because I, you know, I just, he needed to know that. It was something I didn't normally talk about, but he needed to know. Together, you know, he told me at the time, look, that's not who you are now. I've, you know, I don't want to talk about this in detail. I don't want to know all of the, the, the details of it because it'll just upset me. He said, but I know that's not who you are now. Let's let's build our life together on Christ in our, our faith in God and the church. And let's just build a family together and we'll never talk about this again. And I felt so thankful for that new beginning that we he was willing to give me. And he was just like a hero to me that he loved me for who I was. He didn't hold my past against me. And uh, we began a family, but we had never told my children about my relationship with Stephen or about the baby that I had lost in an abortion that I had failed to protect. And I was coerced into that abortion under very difficult circumstances, but I felt very personally responsible also that I had, I was my baby's one defender and I had failed to protect his life. I just kind of gave in under duress to fear and, and uh, cowardice, but I had never told my children about that. So when 
Stephen became an American Idol judge. He published a second book. And in that book, he actually had, he had told my, he had included me in his stories before and it had upset our family. I mean, my husband had read the things in his books and said, you know, this was more than he knew. And he wanted to know what was true, what wasn't. It was very difficult. It was difficult for the two of us, but we had still managed to protect our children from the things that Stephen had written. In his books, he really demoralized me. He just described me in such, you know, very sexualized terms. And it was humiliating. I felt like I had, you know, been dehumanized in his description of me. And so when he wrote his second book, I hoped he would leave me out of it, but he didn't. He included me in that book. And this time at the back of the book, in the credits, he gave my name. And Star Magazine ran an article where they included photographs of me with Stephen. They described the fire and my abortion. And I saw the article first in the checkout line at a grocery store. I was on my way to a fundraising gala for my children's Catholic school. I stopped to get money for a tip for the valet parking. And I saw this tabloid. So all that night I was worrying over who had seen it. Uh, had my children read it yet? And it was just devastating to think that this was going to, I felt like I had worked so hard to rebuild my life and to become, you know, a different person. And I felt as if he was grabbing me by the ankles and trying to drag me back down into the mud again oh. and my whole family with me. And it was very difficult. I did have to have my first silent no more talk at home with my children. And, you know, we shed so many tears that first night when I had to tell them my story and it was just hard for them to believe that it could be true because they had known me as a devout Catholic, their mother who had, you know, they had gone to our local Planned Parenthood with their Catholic youth and prayed the rosary outside, done sidewalk counseling. For, and uh, we had gone to events that supported local women's centers for uh, at-risk pregnancies. So the idea that I had been uh, someone like these other, like these women was really a, a shock to them because they had seen me as someone who was very open to life. And uh, I taught natural family planning in our diocese. We worked in uh, marriage encounter, uh, helping um, engaged encounter, helping prepare young couples for marriage. So this was just a complete turn for them to see me as someone who had once been just uh, at, at risk herself. Mm -hmm. wow. Well, I remember when you marched with Silent No More at the March for Life, and I think it was 2012, and your testimony was so powerful. How did you decide to become such a public advocate for the unborn? Well, um, it was really after telling my children. I wanted to be sure that I was more active in speaking out against abortion. I, I know they knew I had been pro-life and that I had spoken to them about the importance of protecting mothers and children, but I wanted to, they had been more active than I had been because of, you know, their, their activity at church. I wanted to make sure that they didn't doubt where I stood on the life issues. And so I became more active. I wanted to be sure that I was with them when they went down to, uh, pray or it, or anytime I was able to go, I wanted to be uh, at these events. So I began attending 
the March for Life. And my first March for Life was such a, a hopeful, amazing experience because it's not reported in the news the way you see it when you're there. The crowds were overwhelming. As far as the eye could see, there was an ocean of people. And the thing that really surprised me was how young the audience, I mean, this group was. It was not just older people, it was all ages and predominantly youth that were there in trying to work to overcome Roe versus Wade. And what joy we all must feel. And seeing that this has actually been, you know, become a reality where Roe v. Wade was overturned and how thankful I feel that I was just one small person in that crowd on the on the days that I was able to go, the years that we were able to attend. Well, Julia, um, do you have any advice for these young women, young, young girls that are so starstruck, you know, with the rock and roll lifestyle? Any, any before we close, any advice to them? Well, I would just say um, my advice would, would be to anyone at risk of an abortion that or a woman who might have had an abortion. When I've traveled around the country, I've met, you know, speaking at pro-life events, I've met women who've come up to me and said, years ago, I had an abortion and I've never gone to confession. And I really don't, I've never told anyone in my family. And I would encourage uh, a woman in that position to, first of all, have faith in your, uh, first of all, get down on your knees and ask for, for forgiveness, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, whatever you are. First, get down and ask for Jesus to forgive you and ask for him to help you. I really believe that was the turning point for me. And I was led to the church and I was led to my confession. Confession is very important. I think we have to have faith in our priests that they are there as they're going to help us get through confession. If we haven't been to confession in a long time, they will help you get through confession. They did me. I was in confession a long time for my first confession, and I was in tears when I came out, but I felt such joy. Also, I would encourage a woman who's had an abortion to look for a Rachel's Vineyard retreat. That was another life-changing moment for me. After my confession, I continued to change my life and improve my uh, my faith life. But that Rachel's Vineyard retreat really helped me to heal and forgive myself and accept God's grace in my life in a, in a bigger way. It's been a process over many years. I can say that a woman who's had an abortion often feels completely separated from God. And, and it feels like it's a permanent separation, like there's no pathway back to God. And I will just say that that's just not true. God's grace is bigger than our worst sin. He loves us. He wants to forgive us. He just needs us to, to turn our life toward him and ask for his help. Well, you have an incredible story and such 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 powerful strength behind it. And we thank you so much for joining us and for standing up for life. And I hope you'll come back on again. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you, Teresa. Thank you, Julia. Bye. Bye. Pro-abortion Senator Dianne Feinstein, elected to represent California in the U.S. Senate in 1992, has announced that she will not seek re-election in 2024. The 89-year-old Feinstein has suffered from what the New York Times has described as acute short-term memory issues for years, but has never publicly acknowledged the problem. Feinstein has represented California in the Senate longer than anyone, 
but her first election was in 1969 when she was chosen as the president of the 11-member Board of Supervisors that governed San Francisco. She went on to become the first female mayor in the city. Feinstein was no friend to the unborn. During her tenure in the Senate, she voted against bills banning partial birth abortion, imposing charges against those who harm unborn children during a commission of a crime, and continuing ban on abortion and military bases. She received 100% rating from NARAL Pro-Choice America and 0% from the National Right to Life Committee. The senator stepped away from her position as the senior Democrat on the Judiciary Committee after liberals criticized her for hugging Republican Senator Lindsey Graham at the conclusion of the confirmation hearing for Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett. Feinstein has pledged to finish her term, which means California Governor Gavin Newsom cannot name someone to replace her. Some Democrats did not wait for Feinstein's announcement to begin working on their own campaigns. Two House members, Katie Porter and Adam Schiff, already made public their plans to run, and a third, Barbara Lee, is expected to join the roster of candidates. Republican candidates have yet to announce, but under California election law, all candidates run on the same primary ballot, with the top two vote-getters facing off the general, in the general election. So it's possible two Democrats or two Republicans might be on the 2024 ticket. In a related story, CNN is projecting a tough time for Democrats in the U.S. Senate in 2024, with the party having to defend 23 of the 34 seats up for grabs to remain control of the chamber. The news outlet predicts fierce contests in the presidential swing states of Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Arizona has the potential to be a three-way race after incumbent Kirsten Sinema left the Democratic Party and became an independent. CNN ranks West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin as the most endangered incumbent. Democrats hold a slim 51 to 49 majority in the current congressional session. As expected, Nikki Haley, former South Carolina governor and U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, has announced she will seek the Republican nomination for president in 2024 the first official challenger to former President Donald Trump. Other potential rivals include Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former Vice President Mike Pence, and former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. 24 of Joe Biden's nominees for the federal bench have made it through the, state, the Senate Judiciary Committee and will face confirmation votes in the full Senate. Among them are pro-abortion attorney Junie Rickleman, who unsuccessfully argued the Dobbs case in the U.S. Supreme Court and watched as Roe v. Wade was overturned. She has been nominated for the First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston. Rickleman is the litigation director for the Center for Reproductive Rights, an organization that files legal challenges to almost every law seeking to restrict abortion. Republican legislators in some states are looking to make it harder to amend constitutions through ballot initiatives, according to Pew Trust. The Missouri House passed a bill that re would require a 60% supermajority to approve a voter-initiated constitutional amendment. An Ohio bill would set a 60% threshold and require petition signatures from all 88 Ohio counties instead of the current 44 to get a measure on the ballot. In Florida, which already requires a 60% supermajority to amend the Constitution, 
a bill would raise the standard to nearly 67%. Though the pushback on ballot measure has been growing for years, Republican lawmakers are placing more emphasis on tightening the rules after voters in six states, including conservative Kansas, Kentucky, and Montana, voted in favor of pro-abortion initiatives since Roe v. Wade was overturned in June 2022. And that's political news in a nutshell. Now that Roe is gone, legislatures in red states are busy crafting laws protecting babies from abortion. In Iowa, a proposal has been introduced to provide another $1.5 million for the More Options for Maternal Support, or MOMS, program. The program began during last year's legislative session when $500,000 was set aside for distribution to the state's 55 pro-life pregnancy centers. No funds have yet been dispersed. In Nebraska, a heartbeat bill has been introduced that would protect babies from about six weeks gestation. Abortion is currently legal until 20 weeks in Nebraska. Legislators also are considering a bill that would allow medical providers, facilities, and insurers to cite their religious, ethical, or moral beliefs in denying some medical treatments, including abortion. In Arkansas, the House approved a bill that would require companies to offer employees 12 weeks of paid maternity leave if the company pays for employees to get abortions out of state. The bill will now be taken up by a Senate committee. The Republican-controlled Oklahoma legislature is sifting through dozens of bills to expand access to health care and social services and improve child welfare policies. These were not always front-burner issues for the Republicans, but they have gained prominence after a near-total ban on abortion was enacted last year. Many of the bills were modeled on recommendations from a task force created by Governor Kevin Stitt to support mothers through unplanned pregnancies. Kentucky's pro-life attorney general is pushing back against a bill that would allow illegal abortions to be prosecuted as homicides. Attorney General Daniel Cameron, a Republican who was running for governor, has urged his colleagues to reject the bill because he does not believe mothers who have abortions in the state should be prosecuted. Kentucky has banned most abortions, but is still waiting for a ruling from the Kentucky Supreme Court on the constitutionality of the ban. A stalemate continues in South Carolina, where the House and Senate are standing by their separate bills to ban most abortions in the state. The House bill, passed for a second time since Roe v. Wade was overturned, would protect all babies from abortion except for those conceived in rape or incest, those with a fatal illness, and those whose continued development would endanger the life of the mother. Republican senators are working to get a heartbeat bill enacted, despite a similar bill being ruled unconstitutional by the South Carolina Supreme Court earlier this year. Abortion is legal to 22 weeks in South Carolina, making it an outlier among Southern states. With just two weeks to go in the legislative session, most pro-life bills introduced in Virginia, including Governor Glenn Youngkin's proposed 15-week ban, will die without ever making it to the floor of the Republican-controlled House of Delegates or the Democrat-majority Senate. Pro-abortion bills suffer the same fate in the Commonwealth, where all 140 seats in the legislature are on the ballot this November. Justices on the Supreme Judicial Court in deep blue pro-abortion Massachusetts have ruled that personhood rights extend to an unborn child killed as the result of the murder of his or her mother. That's noteworthy in a state where abortion is legal until 24 weeks and later under some circumstances, and where a parental consent requirement for those under 16 is the state's only restriction on the procedure. Pro-lifers who sued the National Archives in Washington, D.C. after they were made to hide the pro-life messages on their clothing during a visit on January 20th have settled their suit after officials apologized and promised personal tours. A separate suit filed by another group of pro-lifers given the same treatment at the National Air and Space Museum continues. 
A baby box in Bowling Green, Kentucky became the first in the state and the 24th in the nation to have an infant surrendered safely by a parent unable to care for the child. Firefighters removed the baby from the ventilated alarmed box within 90 seconds of receiving an alert that an infant was in the box. This child that was surrendered here was not abandoned. This child was legally, safely, anonymously, and lovingly placed inside the safe haven baby box, and that speaks volumes about the parents, said Monica Kelsey, founder of the Baby Box Initiative. On Sunday, when Kansas City Chiefs kicker Harrison Butker calmly strode onto the field in the closing seconds of Super Bowl 57 and booted the ball 27 yards for a field goal, he clinched a 38-35 victory over the Philadelphia Eagles. But as Life News reported this week, Butker is known not only for his impressive skills on the field, but also for his deep commitment to pro-life values. Last summer, Butker filmed a TV commercial in support of the Value Them Both Amendment in Kansas. The ballot proposition aimed to clarify that the Kansas state constitution does not contain a right to abortion. Unfortunately, the proposition failed. The 27-year-old is a devout Catholic who thanked his offensive line, but gave all glory to God when the ball sailed through the uprights. Both quarterbacks on the field for the Super Bowl, Patrick Mahomes for the Chiefs and Jalen Hurts for the Eagles, are devout Christians, a fact widely ignored by the mainstream media. And that's abortion in the news. In our closing story tonight, I would like to share with you an interview from the Students for Life Summit in Washington, D.C. I will introduce you to a young lady, Angelique Clark, who has a unique way of sharing the pro-life message. Hi, I'm Teresa Watson with Pro-Life Primetime News, and I'm here at the Pro-Life Summit with Angelique Clark from Life Dress. Hi, Angelique. Thanks Hi. for being with me. Thank you so much for having me. So um, can, can you get her outfit? Because she's got the cutest outfit on. <laughs> All right, so Angelique, tell us about what you do. So Life Dress is a hand-painted pro-life apparel brand that I started a little over three years ago. And the mission behind Life Dress is to start conversations with what we wear and to have these conversations change people's minds about abortion, you know, and really transform our, our culture in a way that maybe isn't being done with art and creativity. That's amazing. So how did you get the idea? I started Life Dress by painting uh, dresses for pregnancy center galas I was going to. And people just started asking for, you know, dresses. And they said, I would love to wear one of those and start conversations of my own. And that was how Life Dress was formed. And I just started painting what people wanted to say out into the world. So you do all the painting yourself for everything? That's correct, yes. Okay. <laughs> so how, how is it going? How long have you been in business and how is it going? Um, so it's it's definitely growing a lot. Just this past year, I became official partners with Students for Life. Um, we became an official 501c3 nonprofit organization. Congratulations. Thank you. And so we're definitely rapidly growing, trying to expand as a team, you know, and bring more people aboard on this unique mission to change culture with arts and creativity. So, so are you going to have to hire some new artists? I mean, how can you do this, you know, really broad stream? Yeah. We're, right now, I'm actually um, looking for brand activists at the moment other people you know other pro-life activists who are interested in this specific unique way of advocating and joining life dress and coming aboard to bring this message all across the world because it really is a global issue um, so something life dress is trying to do is bring workshops creative workshops to students and young people all across the world um, last month I was actually in Belize and I was able to teach a pro-life workshop to students we painted a pro-life mural they painted a dress and it's just it's definitely growing a lot so Wow, what a creative idea. I'm Thank so you. excited for you. So tell me, where can people go to find out and you've got your yeah. products? So my website is called lifedress.org. 
And you can also access me on social media, lifedress.org on everything. So Awesome. Well, it's been such a pleasure meeting you. And I saw some things on the card that I'm going to order for myself. You oh, have you. a pair of jeans with the sunflowers and on it, and I, that's all about me. So I'm so excited. Thank so you thank so you. much. Nice meeting you. Nice meeting you, too. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priest for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida. We hope you will tune in every Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. We hope you will support this show and all of our broadcasts by making a donation to ProLifeGift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priest for Life, which enables us to continue educating, equipping, and activating the pro-life community to end abortion. I'm Teresa Watson, Executive Manager. And I'm Leslie Palma, Communications Director. Remember, life is the only choice. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.